episode 33 of the Crownsman podcast. Good morning, hello, good evening, depending on what time you're watching this. I'm your host, Jared Downey. My co-host is Gaudi Molina. Good morning. Good morning. Are you ready for um, our guest today, Roy Slack from Cementation? Or no, uh, he's actually the president of the Canadian Institute of Mining, CIM, um, and he's a director at Cementation Americas. Um, but he is the former president. I'll actually let him. I'll let him <laughs> unpack that. I'm going to stop. Um, <laughs> but uh, cementation is, we're gonna, we are going to talk about quite a bit about cementation today. They, uh, they are the ones who, they're the mining contractors. They build the mines. Um, and we've had sort of, we've done technology and sort of everything around the mines. We haven't really got a chance to talk about the, the actual building of the mine with a company who does it on the show, um, yeah. which is a weird that we haven't done that yet. But anyway, it was just it just hasn't that guest hasn't come in yet. So, um, and some of the events that CIM puts on. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Yeah. Um, before we do any of that, we have to thank the people that sponsor us. Yes, um, that make the Cransman podcast possible. But before I go into that, Mike, here's there we go. Um, before I head into that, I do want to talk about our new um, Crownsman specials that we just rolled out. So this is a new series um, where you can promote um, your own products or services in a one-on-one -on -one interview right here in our podcast studio. Um, just not this particular studio. So you'll see our new studio there um, on the screen. And it's a great way for any company to come in, promote, again, products, services, projects, um, anything in particular that they'd like to highlight. Um, and we actually have DRA Global and Savannah Equipment who are both coming in releasing their new um, specials and that's coming up in the next couple weeks. So make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can stay tuned with uh, those new uh, episodes. And, uh, and let us know if you um, are looking to have your own little series or own specials, and we'd be happy to help you. You can email us at info at crownsman.com or visit us at www.crownsman.com. All right. Cool. And now um, I will go into uh, Savannah Equipment. If you need everything from slurry pumps to jaw crushers to ball mills to conveyors go to the leader in mining equipment, and that's Savannah Equipment, and you can visit them at SavannahEquipment.com where you will find more equipment every day. We're also sponsored by Data Cloud. Does it feel like you're drilling and, blasti and blasting blind? Could your MWD measurements be better? The Data Cloud platform shows your lithology changes in real time for better blasting and fragmentation profiles. Check out their IoT sensors and cloud computing platform at datacloud.com and learn how you can know your rock today. Awesome. Yeah. Um, can you do me a favor before we go any further? Could you uh, just turn my... Uh, Mic? Or sorry, headphones? Headphones down just a little bit. Okay. My, my own voice sorry. is too loud in is my head. Is that better? That's, that's good, yeah. Uh, a little bit up. Little uh, up there. Perfect. Perfect. Sorry. Thank you. Perfect. Okay, Rory, welcome to the show. I was telling you before the show the the name Rory, Rory <laughs> is the other owner of this company. So every time I go to r that sound, I go to go Rory. It's very difficult. So I do know <laughs> your name. <laughs> it's 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 not that. It's a habit of saying Rory. <laughs> um, no problem. <laughs> so. Um, Give us a little bit of background about uh, about cementation, um, 
cementation, CIM, your sort of role, just so the audience sort of has an understanding of, of who you are and what you do? Well, sure. I'm always happy to talk about cementation and uh, very proud of the company. We, uh, we started the, the current version in, in 1998. And it was, uh, well, originally cementation out of the UK was interested in establishing or, or acquiring, I should say, a contractor in North America. And I had my own consulting firm and they approached me to find a potential acquisition. So I did a review for them. Uh, I made a recommendation, which I'll, I'll come back to in a minute. Made a recommendation, but they had recognized I'd done a couple of startups and they said, instead of buying a company, would you start one for us? So I went to visit their operations in the UK and South Africa, and I was very impressed with how they did things. So I said, yes. So we started from scratch, uh, hired a few people I knew, and um, I, I think in the first year we had $24,000 in revenue. <laughs> now the company's about half a billion a year in revenue, so it was quite a substantial growth. But it, it was a, a real startup. Uh, the rest of the story, is that the company that I recommended that we acquire, we did buy four years later. Oh. That was Aurora Quarry. And that was, in terms of acquisitions, you hear different stories about acquisitions, that was a fantastic one. In terms of one plus one equals five, <laughs> well, mm. instead of one plus one equals one and a half, uh, everything worked well. Uh, the people came together. We still have... Um, that synergy in terms of uh, expanding geographical coverage, expanding client base, uh, ideal acquisition. Yeah. So, so that's a little bit of the history uh, of cementation in the Americas, which, in fact, the company works far beyond the Americas now. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, I'm very proud of what the team has done, and it's a, a great company. I was, um, you know, I wanted to sort of start off with, Cementation is, it's got, it, it's, it's been everywhere doing work, but it's done, I, I'd say probably one of the most hope, pro, what it, probably most high profile from publicly, it would be what they, the work they did in Chile. Could you talk about that a little bit? Certainly, we were, uh, um, we were working, we had uh, a company based in Santiago and, and doing work in South America and mainly in Chile. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, TerraSem was the name of the company. So Terra Services and Cementation. It was a joint venture with a local company. We were doing a raised bore hole uh, for Cadelco uh, in the Atacama region where the San Jose mine was. And then we saw on the news that these 33 miners were trapped underground. This was 2010. Mm -hmm. So we were quite nearby. Uh, we very quickly put a proposal together um, and sent it to the government. We didn't really know who to send it to because the San Jose mine was, uh, you know, in a kind of a state of confusion uh, as to a plan on how we would get the miners out. And because we had equipment very nearby, we became plan A. Mm. So they, they brought us in. We set up a raised bore machine. We began to drill down. It was 700 meters from the point of our machine to where the where they believed the miners were, because right at the start there was no communication. They didn't know if they were alive or where they were, but there was a refuge station. So we began drilling towards that station. 
Uh, in the meantime, they had broken a diamond drill hole through and found out that all 33 were alive. So mm. uh, there were three different plans. Uh, the Chilean government did a very smart thing is they had three different plans to rescue the miners. And it was actually plan B that broke through first. It was a bit of a race, but uh, uh, a lot of Canadian involvement because, and people sometimes don't know this, so Cementation Canada was, it was our equipment that was on plan A and uh, um, our people that were supervising that. Uh, plan C was actually a group from Calgary oh. doing the drilling as well. Uh, but uh, very interesting, a small project in terms of scope the type of projects we do, but probably the most high-profile project we've ever done. And we were all very happy to see the miners uh, all get out safely. So, Yeah, that was a, that story was yeah. everywhere when that came out. Yeah. Um, was it, um, had you been involved in projects like like those, those sort of rescue-type things before, or was that sort of a, a, a one-off? Definitely a one-off. Yeah. And there are some very interesting aspects to it. We were... It was technically challenging, and I won't get into the, the the tricky parts of it, but the the way the industry came together and some of the equipment that would probably take three or four months to design, we were designing in one or two weeks. Mm. There was such a sense of urgency, working around the clock with people in different countries. It was a, a great example of how the global mining industry can pull together and, and really do uh, achieve something great. So. Very small scope, but uh, huge cooperation across the globe. It was it was very inspiring. Yeah, the the, the uh, curious side of me is going to get the better. So, um, <laughs> what 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 were some of the technical? What were some of the technical? If uh, if it's not too too much. To okay. Dig into? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, happy to go into that. the The approach we had was raised boring, and with raised boring, what you do is you you drill, let's say a, a fifteen inch hole. Mm. I'm going to switch from inches to metrics, sorry, but the, I, yeah. I work in both. But okay. Uh, a 15-inch hole down, and then we would put a reamer on it, and we would ream it out to about 30 inches diameter, mm -hmm. and that would be big enough to, to bring people up. The problem is, to do that, you need access below. We didn't have access below because right. the mine had caved in. Uh, so... What we were going to do is we were going to do a down ring, which has some challenges. It, it usually isn't done beyond 100 meters, but we had to do 700 meters. But in the Chilean paper, there was an interview with a uh, local university professor, and he said, uh, oh, if they're going to raise bore it, uh, of course, they're going to drill a pilot hole, and then they're going to lower the reamer down the pilot hole. And we thought, well... First of all, he didn't really know what he was talking about. Mm. But then we thought, that's not a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> so that's when we started engineering this unique system where we could, in a 15-inch hole, we could lower all the parts so that the miners could put them together so we could oh. upgrade. Oh. So, so that's, instead of uh, some of the traditional methods, this innovative approach, and we got together with... Uh, groups from Australia and South Africa and Germany, uh, different suppliers and companies, and brainstormed this. And within, I think, five days, we had a design, uh, and Atlas Copco put that together. And then we looked around the world who could manufacture this very quickly and found um, 
uh, a group in, in Sudbury that had the material in stock. So it all came together. It was amazing how quickly it came together because when you look at an innovative idea, it usually takes time and yeah. effort and review and review and review. Uh, but uh, this was great collaborative effort. And uh, uh, so that's uh, about as technical as I'll get into. <laughs> it's, uh, one more question on it, though. Does it, uh, it, did that, does that carry over to anything else? Like doing that sort of innovation, does it ever get used again? Or is that sort of one-off? And, and, or does it go, oh, that, that could actually work? It did get used again. And, uh, and the reason I know that is after we did the job, we uh, donated the equipment to Science North mm. in Sudbury. And they put it on display at Dynamic Earth, which is their underground uh, science center. And I visited there a year or two later, and it wasn't there. And I said, where did it go? They said, well, Atlas Copco needed it for a project. So that was really <laughs> good because it was like an $80,000 piece of equipment, yeah. uh, but very specialized. But that's great. They found work for it. So That's pretty that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Um, some of these major projects to, uh, that you, you said, like on a scale, that was fairly small. But uh, some of these big projects, like you did the, the Nickel Rim South, I think it's called, uh, yeah. shaft in Sudbury. So what sort of scale, I think we were bring up some pictures of that, but what sort of scale is that a product? That was a very exciting project for us. It was uh, two shafts. Uh, the shafts, uh, you know, no, I, I won't get the, the numbers exactly right, but I, I think they were uh, about uh, 1,600 meters deep, gi give or take. So relatively deep shafts. Uh, and... Uh, then we also did the development, and for us it was a design build. So we designed the shafts, and we sunk them. Uh, so the engineering and the the construction with our own people. So a, a great project for us. Uh, I don't remember the full. I'm thinking 250 million, something like that, would have been our scope in the project. Uh, and uh, uh, we started. When we started the company, one of the early projects we were awarded was Onaping Depth with Falconbridge. So Falconbridge, Extrata, Glencore, long-term client, have a, had a lot of faith in us when we were small. Mm -hmm. And we delivered for them, and they remembered that. And so uh, we were successful with Nickel Rim. And uh, great project, no lost time injuries. Uh, it was on budget, on schedule, which uh, is not the norm in this day and age. If we get to talk about capital projects, we'll yeah. talk about that. But uh, a project we're very proud of and very close working relationship with the owner and it just all those things that make a project great. So on a two, you, so if your scope is 250 million, um, I mean, that's just a huge scope of work. And so when, they, when they're coming to you with a project like that, do they have a preliminary design and then you redesign it for the best operation? Or do they come and say, we've done our testing, this is where we need to get to, tell us how to do it? So with uh, both, both, okay, but I'll explain Nickel Rim. Nickel Rim, they brought us in at pre-feasibility study. Mm. So we developed the designs for them based on their uh, requirements. And we also developed the budgets. So going from a pre-feasibility to a feasibility and then to the detailed design and then construction. So through that process, we had developed a budget and that budget kind of morphed into our contract, so to speak. Right. 
Uh, so it's it's a very uh, logical way to do a project, but not typical in our industry. Oh, it's not <laughs> typical. No. 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 Usually a, a group will do a, a feasibility study. They'll develop a budget, and then the owner will go out to tender. number of contractors will bid it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, but this was uh, the continuity uh, and the engagement right from square one was all there. And I think that's part of the success of the project. Right. Yeah. Are you, uh, on that, on a project like that, when you're designing how you're going to do everything and operate, you're not just using your own people either, right? You're bringing in other contractors for specific parts of the project. Is that right? Yeah. The the design work itself uh we we do the design of the uh, of the surface facilities and the shaft we wouldn't do the design of the office building for example mm-hmm. that's the specialty of another group or the fill plant or or the processing plants like that uh but the uh the head frame the hoist building the shaft itself we would design that now in terms of the work we would have a subcontractor do the head frame right uh, usually a local group, just makes sense. Uh, and then it would be our own people, our direct hire people that, that do all the underground work. Yeah. So, Does it, does it still, uh, I want to move on to some of these other projects, but does it still amaze you? I mean, I've, you've been in mining longer than I have. I've been around it kind of my whole life in some ways, but it sort of never ceases to amaze me what they build, what what's get designed. That even from the equipment end all the way to the design of the mines, does it ever sort of stop amazing you what is built? It, that's a real interesting question, and and it's almost like we discussed that beforehand, but we didn't. Yeah. Uh, because when we had our twentieth anniversary recently, and I I talked to our people, and, and I reminisced wh- when I was a student. And I worked. I went to Queen's University in mining engineering, and I worked at uh, GECO in Manitowoc, uh, in northern Ontario. And uh, one day they put me on a shaft inspection crew. So uh, riding the cage and going down the shaft, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, "How on earth would they ever have built this?" So I, so I got a a technical paper from one of the engineers there that, and I read that, and I still didn't know how they built it. <laughs> I'm still in awe yeah. of what our people do. And uh, it's w- when you start to look at all the different elements and how it's done, from an engineering perspective, y- you can engineer it. When you actually go down there and see it done, it is it is pretty amazing. It still amazes me. Yeah, and, it's, and everything's different. That's what, for me, that's what mining is so amazing, yeah. I- is that it's every project, like you, were, you brought up pictures of that in Chile, um, but then you go up into the mountains in BC, for instance. It's the terrain and everything. It's always so different. It's it's never the same project. Well, I I worked at Equity Silver for a summer in British Columbia, and I remember my uh, uh, my supervisor asking me where I was from, and I I grew up in Kingston, so I said in Kingston, Ontario, and he said, you know, the only good thing to come out of the east is the sun. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so I didn't talk any any more about where I was from. That was uh, that was uh, the message was clear. <laughs> but uh, I had a great summer in uh, Houston, just uh, just uh, outside of Smithers, and and did a job there. And so I've had the opportunity to work really coast to coast. I worked Ile de Madeleine, the Magdalen Islands, uh, off the coast, and the salt mine. I worked in BC, and uh, really 
from coast to coast to coast. So it's a fantastic country, and I've been privileged. Yes, <laughs> so we all are to be involved in it. Um, and then the Gold Corp. You did Gold Corp. Red Lake. Um, that's that's raised boring. So that's similar to what we were talking about, but obviously in a different. Um, like was that was that a that's a pretty large scale project as well, isn't it? It it is, and and what happened at Red Lake is, and what happens traditionally, people will wonder why we sink two shafts at once. So Nickel Rim was an example of that. Piccadilly, Red Lake. They were looking at two shafts. The reason you do that is. If you sink one shaft, you've got so much ventilation underground. And the ventilation dictates how fast you can do the development. Mm. If you sink two shafts, you've got a full vent system, and you can put a lot more equipment down, and you can develop to the ore body quicker. So often the approach was to sink two shafts. Red Lake was interested in two shafts. But what we did was said we can sink one shaft and go off different levels and do a raised bore hole beside it. The unique thing about Red Lake it's the largest raised bore hole that was ever done in hard rock in North America oh. at 5.5 meters diameter. So I think that's 18 feet, something like that in feet and inches. But uh, that was the start of large diameter raised boring in Canada. Oh. And, th and this, is a um, this is a vertical? Vertical hole cut. Yeah. So it wasn't drill and blast, it's cut. And so that became their vent shaft where we were sinking their service shaft but instead of sinking two shafts we sank the shaft and raised board one beside it oh. so save them uh, quite a bit of money in terms of capital uh, was also uh, achieved everything they needed in terms of the mine design but it uh, and you know gold corp uh, placed their faith in us because it was a new approach to north america and the canadian shield is known to be quite hard mm -hmm. So cutting is a challenge there, but uh, the job worked well. Since then, we've done many raised bore holes of that size. So, uh, so we introduced that uh, large diameter raised bore into North America at Red Lake. Oh, I didn't realize. Uh, <coughs> and when you said about bringing up this project, you know, in the pre-interview, I didn't realize that that was the initial one of that scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I want to talk this the out in Michigan. Um, uh, was actually I should I should double check. There's you did a mine, a eagle mine. In was that in Michigan? Yeah, we're yeah. St we're still there, still doing work. Oh, there. that's that's an ongoing yeah. project. That's an ongoing project, and uh, uh, we started at Eagle uh, doing some raised boring. That was the first part of it, and then we were awarded the development, and the job went very well, and uh, they kept us on to do the contract mining. So we do all their underground work for them. Uh, it, it's gone very well, and it's a great partnership with Lundin, who's, who's the client. It's just uh, west of Marquette, so in the Upper Peninsula, a beautiful area of Michigan. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to think uh, if we've been there six or seven years now. But uh, it's uh, we talk about we build mines, but we also mine mines. But that did. didn't fit into the marketing. You know, the byline was if we said we build mines, we mine mines, we do this, we do that. So we kept it short. But uh, the reality is we do contract mining as well, and that's an example. Is that a big part of the business? Because I actually didn't realize that. It's um, not, not as prevalent in North America. Uh, in certain uh, Australia, uh, there's a lot of contract mining. In other areas of the world, there is. Uh, we're doing uh, uh, Hope Bay in uh in uh, Nunavut, 
we do the production development for Divic in Northwest Territories. We do. Yeah, that was another project. Yeah. That, that's a Divic diamond mine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we do some contract mining. It's not the major part of our volume, but uh, it's uh, for certain mines it fits well, and we're uh, you know we're very happy to do it. So. What's what's the advantage or disadvantage? Like in uh, in Australia, um, you're you're saying that they're doing a lot of it here. They're not as much. Is there sort of what what's sort of the trade off? Like, will you see will you see it go one way? Like uh, over in North America, will you see a shift towards contract mining over time? There, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of things involved. Uh, you know, some of uh, some of the major mining companies uh, have agreements with their employees through unions or other things, oh. and so they're about creating jobs internally and preserving those jobs. Right. Uh, if a mine has a relatively short mine life, it may make sense to contract mine it out rather than establish HR and your hiring policies right, and all yeah. those things that you need to do. Uh, some mining companies are more about uh, exploration than they are about operations. Uh, certainly the large mining companies are very experienced in operations, but, but some companies uh, say, well, if, if you've got that experience and can do it, that's not our prime skill set. Right. So there's different reasons for it. Uh, and uh, I can't really tell you why it became uh, so popular in Australia. It could be reduction in capital costs for, for the owners. It could be uh, there were companies there that were experienced in it, so it was a good option for them. Uh, I'm not quite sure why it took off there. Yeah. You were talking, well, kind of dovetailing into that, these capital projects, um, you know, trying to keep something on schedule, on time, and uh, that... Um, that's always a challenge um, in in the industry, especially with the different variables. Is is there something specific that a, a company like Cementation does that actually keeps things? Is there is there a way that's done differently than the five other companies that do do a similar thing? When we uh, so this is a a, a topic I, I love to talk about. So we we don't have six hours, but <laughs> but uh, I will get you back on. <laughs> When we started uh, cementation, one of the uh, we really targeted, um, you know, a vision of changing the industry. Mm. And there were three things we wanted to change in the industry. One was we wanted to make it safe, not just safer, but safe. So safety was a primary goal. Uh, we wanted to reintroduce design build. It kind of got out of our type of business, and we thought it was a good way to do things. And we wanted to eliminate adversarial relationships. You know, there was the, you want to say the traditional, the, the stereotypical owner-contractor battling over costs. And we, we'd seen how that didn't work well. And so we looked at uh, different contract formats, different ways where we could build alignment early on. So the, the contractor and the owner were working together. Mm. Uh, so we, we've really tried to focus on some things. So between the design build and the type of agreements and the working relationships we, we build with our clients, we've tried to change some of that. Uh, when it comes to capital projects in general, uh, there's a very interesting study done um, a couple of years ago by a gentleman from uh, U of T, I think. And it's not just mining. 
capital projects, infrastructure projects around the world traditionally are over budget mm -hmm. and behind schedule. Yeah. Uh, and the, the human factor is a big part of that is we are an optimistic bunch. Uh, and I like to say uh, uh, underestimation is underestimated. We, we, are, um, w we tend to be uh, uh, optimistic when we look at budgets and schedules. Uh, we don't like to um, put as much risk in. I don't know if it's cultural or if it's just human nature, but uh, but there, there's different behavioral elements in how we do projects that we need to look at beyond the technical aspects. So that that leads me to a, and it's it's something I'm always trying to find that balance. Um, is how much of when you said that sort of that adversarial relationship between yeah. the owner and the contractor and that that's pretty much across any type of industry yeah. any sort of where you're building something how much of it is that relationship is from a technical standpoint um, and how would i when you're planning that how much is it about the company's culture when you're actually dealing with that owner or how much of it is from a practical planning standpoint that maintains that relationship? I know it's a mixture of both, yeah. but it sort of where where is the focus on when you're doing these types of projects? Well, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I may not answer your question, but I'll give you an example I think addresses it. Uh, we're working with a client we've known for a while, and there's mutual trust there. Mm -hmm. And we're developing a contract, and we agreed to make a change and we redraft the contract and don't put the change in. You know, they're looking through it, they're saying, oh, they missed that. Well, we'll pick that up and correct it. If you don't know the client and there's not that base of trust, it's how come they didn't put that in? Why are they trying to trick us? Right. It, it's kind of a, a subtle difference, but that whole trust base makes uh, the relationship much more durable because there are going to be bumps in the road. There, it's these capital projects uh, underground. There's always things that come up and challenges and there's risks, and that uh, that strong working relationship at the start. You know, I'm I'm trying not to do a marriage analogy here, but there's there's an obvious. It analogy. comes up quite often on yeah. our on the show yeah. actually. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it's very real. And and it's it's hard to evaluate that technically or from a project management standpoint, right. but it can make a big difference on any project. Yeah. Do you think part of the issue, just from on the contractor's side, is that I mean we've you've bid on lots of jobs. Uh, our company's been involved in bidding on on projects just in a different yeah. different space, and it's always this line between you know sort of. Even if they haven't told you, you sort of know where the budget they want it to be, but you kind of also know where it should be. And is, but are you in, in some ways saying that relationship, you have to have it established beforehand? Because if you, how, I'll, I, actually, this in this sense, if you come and it's a new company that you haven't worked with before, and you're going, well, they need to spend about 20% more. Which in your dealing when you're dealing with a two hundred fifty million dollar project, that's huge. And yeah. investors, if it's a public company, they're going to see that. Yeah. It's such a, it's such. There's so many spin-off effects of, of going to them. So how tempting is it to go? Well, we can do it for this. So, uh, what we've done as a company, well, we, when we started the company, we established this, or, or right from the start, we intended to build this culture, what we call best for project. Mm. 
And what Best for Project is, is it's not about the money. So if you come to me and you say, we want to establish access to our ore body, we'll look at how to, how to do it safe, we'll look at how to, to save capital on it. Uh, our initial focus is to give you what you want and to make it something that's going to be long-term and operable. And it's not about how, how much money can we make from it. That's an odd position to be in as a contractor, not to be focused on the profit. But we preach that all the time to our people and look at best for project decisions. When you have a decision to make on a project, what is going to be best for the project in the long run? And if it costs cementation money, that's okay. Because that long run and those long-term clients are what have made our company successful. Yeah. So, so how do you maintain those relationships? So do you lose? But uh, so out of ten projects, do you lose money on two of them because of that 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 culture? No. No. But we don't win a number of projects we bid. Right. Because we'll we'll look at a project and we'll say the, um, you know, we will bid an alternate approach mm. because we say well we don't think this approach is best for project. There may be some risk. There may be some different things, but here is how we would do it, and here's our price, and if you're interested, we can talk. And sometimes, if you don't bid the base case, you're just off the list. Right. right. Uh, but what we found, you know, we recently uh, finished a project in Godrich. The initial request for proposal came out, and we felt there were some real high-risk items to the mine. Mm. Uh, at, at a salt mine, there's, there's always a risk of, of water inflows. So we came in with a different proposal, and we said, w we would propose to do it this way. It's not the way you, you planned it, but we think it really de-risks your project, and if you want to talk to us about it. They liked our proposal, and we got the job. So, you know, sometimes you're off the list because you didn't bid the base case. Sometimes the client recognizes that our approach might be better for them, and it is a best-for-project approach, and we get the job. So. So, uh, you know, you, you stick with your values and, and your vision, and if it works, great, and if we don't get the job, well, you know, part of contracting is not getting work. Right, you yeah. Can't get, you can't lose too much sleep over losing a bid because you lose more than you win is the right. reality. But, uh, but Cementation's been doing it for 30? Uh, we celebrated our 20th anniversary 20th. last year, so 21 years, yeah. 1998. Yeah, and I, f I feel like a lot of, you know, the the people that are watching these, sh I mean, there's definitely people that are bidding on jobs in all industries yep. watching this show. And and the reason I, I wanted to sort of dig into it a bit is because it's hard if you're, if you're only five or six years old and you need that, especially if you're tied to a bank or something, I mean, you need these contracts yep. and it's, it's hard to play that long game. I mean, you can, you know, you can Absolutely. do a presentation and say it's going to be this and it's going to be that, but when you got when the the payroll comes in and the taxes are coming in and the bank is wanting their funds and it's a real it's it's so tempting it's so yeah. tempting so we went through that so you know my own experience i, I was a partner in a company called uh, blm in sudbury mm. small contractor and we started out the traditional way we'd take a small project hoping to work our way up and a couple things happened one we were funded by the bank yeah the bank doesn't like rapid growth Contracting is all about rapid growth. If you don't grow quickly, you, you know, you get pigeonholed. 
and uh, we became recognized as a local contractor that did construction and we were successful but never really considered for the major projects. So when we started cementation, there was, a, there was a couple of things that we focused on. One, the biggest projects. Even mm -hmm. though we were brand new, we said there's five projects we we're going after and they're the five largest projects in Canada at that time. The wow. other thing we did is the Caverner Group, which owned cementation in the UK, they were our bank. And Huge they understood difference. contracting. Yeah. And they knew, you know, you're going to buy some equipment, there's going to be some investment, but that's what you need to get these large projects. And uh, a, a bank, it would be very difficult to convince a bank of that. So those lessons learned um, uh, at BLM really benefited us when we started cementation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to do, uh, we should throw in uh, the, the other sponsors, and then we'll do a little transition into some of your, some of your background and, you know, personal, uh, your personal life. Not <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Um, so we are also brought to you by Streamline. Streamline offers a complete package of fleet management solutions with three incredible products. Um, first up, NaviStream, their onboard intelligence and telematics system. NaviLink, their vehicle automation and IoT platform, and Dagama, their dynamic transportation management system. And you can visit them at stti.com for the Streamline Advantage. All right. Yeah. Streamline was a guest on our show. They're doing some neat stuff in the transportation world. Well, you know, I was going to comment because uh, I'm, I'm listening to your, to your sponsors, and it is a bit of a snapshot of what's happening in our industry mm -hmm. because the w we're at a stage where we can collect all kinds of data, mm -hmm. but that's not enough. You got to figure out what to do with that data, and some of your sponsors are are so I'm I'm plugging your sponsors <laughs> here. I'm, I'm trying to help out. But well, it's all, but the, all uh, the industries overlap. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. Um, okay, um, I wanted to, to let's do a little transition and, and get to know you a little bit more um, and where you started. I know you mentioned um, you went to school at uh, Queen's University. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I went, uh, I grew up in Kingston, mm -hmm. so my parents said you're going to Queen's. Okay. <laughs> I went to Queen's, I was in arts, and I was majoring in psychology. Wow. And what happened was, after my second year, I'd run out of money. So I was going to have to work for a year. And a friend of mine was going into mining engineering. And he said, if you apply for a job at GECO in Manitowoc, tell them you're going into mining, you'll get the job. I said, really? And I think they were paying like $5 an hour, which was big money, and you could work overtime. And mm -hmm. So I was going to be able to. So I applied, and sure enough, I got the job. So I had my, uh, my maths and chemistries and physics because I'd done a general arts. and So I applied to transfer into engineering. And uh, this may not be a great promo of mining, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, so I went to an interview with the dean of engineering at Queen's, and he looked at my transcript, and he said, well, he said, your marks aren't that great. He said, maybe you could go into mining or geology or metallurgy. <laughs> so I said, well, you know what? I've got a summer job at a mine, so I'll go into mining. So it was completely arbitrary. Wow. wow. I think the psychology background helped a little bit because there's <laughs> some characters you deal with in our industry. There's a few. We've had a few on the <laughs> show that are, and people love them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I, I did mining engineering at Queen's. Uh, and uh, when I got out of school, I had 
this great job at Crow's Nest Resources in Calgary. And it was a job everyone in our class wanted and two of us got it. Uh, it must have been a good interview because I didn't get it from the marks. But two weeks before we were to head out to Calgary, they called and said, there's been a downturn and we've had to lay off engineers and your job's no longer available. Oh no. So Redpath was, uh, so Redpath was hiring summer, so I hired on, although I graduated, I hired on as a summer student with Redpath and went to uh, Ile de Madeleine, uh, you know, a little island, uh, which is uh, a Quebec, mm -hmm. part of Quebec, uh, very different French than mainland French. <laughs> but, uh, so I worked at the salt mine there and after that went to Dome, number eight shaft. Uh, so I did a shaft at um, Ile de Madeleine in the salt mine, went to Dome, did number eight shaft, a big project in Timmins. Went from there up to Hemlo. Uh, it was when uh, three mines were found in the mid 80s and we sunk the Lack shaft, which became William shaft. And uh, went and ran a project in Val and then did different things. And then in 89, we started that company in Sudbury. Mm. So uh, so that's the, the background. I met my wife in Timmins when we were doing the Dome project. And uh, we've got uh, two kids, three grandkids, and uh, uh, that's <laughs> the, the short bio. <laughs> that's great. And um, in uh, with your time in mining, ha have you found a project that's really stood out for you? There, yeah. Well, there's th there's many. Uh, certainly, uh, learned some things. Stood out is different than successful. <laughs> yeah. So you learn from the good ones and the bad ones. We're allowed ones. to talk about it all on the yeah. show. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the project we did in Timmins, um, there were fatalities on that project. And that was an eye-opener for me as a young engineer. Wow. You know, we're in an industry. Where so many people in an industry that promote safety, mm -hmm. you know, have some impactful event in their background that's that's... Mm. encourage them to do so uh, same with me so that was a very good project I, I learned a lot there but also it my eyes got opened as to some of the safety issues in our industry and I'm very proud to say our industry has gone miles and miles in terms of safety from those days uh, certainly the project at Nickel Rim we talked about mm -hmm. uh, you know it wasn't an easy project but it was a successful project and it was like all those things we were trying to do came together. Mm. You know, in yeah. terms of a working relationship, in terms of design build, that that vision of how to, um, you know, the perfect project on purpose, if you want an alliteration. But uh, uh, all of that came together on that project. Um, Piccadilly, uh, a twin shaft in New Brunswick mm -hmm. for Potash Corp, was an interesting project. We And we tried some things that didn't work. It was a successful project, uh, no injuries, the, the shafts went down fine. We tried this design change to make things safer and easier, and we worked with the client and other consultants on it. When all was said and done, it didn't work. So we went in and fixed it at our cost. And that's our philosophy as a company. We still have a good relationship with the owner. Uh, they recognize that, you know, so when we talk about innovation, we have to be prepared to, to, what we say is, is try those things that don't 
put our people at risk, that don't right. put, you know, that don't um, uh, jeopardize safety of our people. But that project was interesting in a different way because we, we innovated and we tried something. Uh, it worked, but in the long term it didn't. So we went back in and fixed it at our cost. And that's what design build is all about, is accountability. Right. So, uh, so that's just a few. I could go on and on because <laughs> there's, uh, you know, the there's projects so <laughs> projects still uh, excite me, and and uh, uh, we're a project based company. But uh, that's yeah. a few examples. Um, on the note of uh, uh, you know uh, innovation and and technology, how much has that impacted uh, the industry? So. There's, I, th I think it's Tolstoy that, that said it all. So I'll paraphrase Tolstoy because it describes our industry to a T. Um, everybody wants change, but nobody wants to change. Mm -hmm. That's mining. Everyone talks about innovation, but traditionally we've been a very conservative business. And there's a right. reason for that. There, there's so much risk in all the different elements. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, commodity pricing, capital costs, yeah. operating costs. So... Uh, but after saying that, it's really encouraging what's happening now. Uh, there's uh, much more interest and acceptance uh, acceptance of innovative ideas. Uh, you know, your sponsors are an example of that, yeah. how the mining industry is embracing data, but yeah. also doing it smartly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, you, you don't collect thousands and thousands of, um, of data points. Yeah you collect them and then you need them analyzed before you can actually use them. Right. Uh, the, the conversion from diesel to battery, that's ongoing in the mining industry. Uh, you know, it, it's environmentally um, uh, s supportive, but it's really being driven by cost, the right. reality is. Yeah. Uh, we were in Disrupt Mining, we were a winner in 2017. A uh, very interesting process I presented to the Sharks Tank group, which included Herjavec and uh, Rob McEwen and mm -hmm. a couple other people. And uh, it was, uh, i that's the most time I ever spent preparing for a five-minute presentation, <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> but uh, very exciting, and uh, it was, although it was showtime, mm -hmm. right? but, but you need that too. You need that to, to spur innovation on. So there's a yeah. number of things happening in our industry now that really encourage us that uh, there, there's a new openness mm -hmm. to new ideas and innovation. Mm -hmm. So uh, so it's an exciting time. Uh, we're seeing some different ways shafts are being sunk. And we've got a conference coming up in November looking at, uh, uh, and we've got, I think, papers from 11 different countries on how they're doing it. The Chinese delegation has six papers in. And... It's, everyone's doing things a little differently, but you can see mm -hmm. a major step change happening going from drill and blast to cutting technology. Mm -hmm. And uh, so these are step changes, you know, so they're not optimization, but these are going from here to here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's an exciting time to be in mining and it's an exciting time to be a young person in mining because... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so much depends on the technical expertise of our people. And, you know, I gave a, a speech to um, the graduating class at Nipissing University a couple of years ago. And what I explained to them is some of us who are older, we were, our culture was to avoid change. We want stability. 
in business, we want stability, we want predictability. Yeah. But the world's changing so quickly, and I really believe that younger people, change is just part of what they grew up through. Yeah. And, and it's happening very quickly. So they're much more able to adapt to change than some of us older people are. So it is a, a young person's game, and you know the ability to innovate and to implement that innovation is a young person's game too. So it's an exciting time for young people to be in our industry. Yeah. Right, yeah. Have you encountered any uh, major challenges throughout your career? Uh, the interesting question, abs well, absolutely. I think, I think everyone does. <laughs> uh, contracting was about moving around. Mm. And so m my wife and our family were very supportive. Uh, any project that was more than six months in duration, we moved there. Uh, that is not as much an option today for young people. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was it was a challenge for us. But w when I say that we, you know, every place we went, we really enjoyed, and and uh, uh, they're great projects, and uh, uh, you know, it it worked out well. It was a challenge, but it worked out well. But I really see it as a challenge for our, our, our younger people today who. You know, where there's two careers and people aren't as mobile, and uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was I was actually going to talk a little bit about the um, the young people getting into mining, and I, I remember this was probably I don't know seven years ago now, and I I very distinctly I think I've told the story a few times on the show. I distinctly remember sitting in an audience. I was. I, there might have been a few students there, but as a working professional, I'm pretty sure I was probably the youngest person in the okay. room. And there was a speaker, uh, Moro Chiesa was one of the keynote speakers. And there was he was one of the older people on the panel, and there was probably four or five other people there. And he was speaking, and he was all about innovation and the new way of doing, you know, collaborating yeah. with local communities and the technology. And I distinctly remember him saying, he said, nowadays, you're, you're talking to a young person, and they're on your phone, and you're, as you're telling them how things are going to do, what's going to get done, and everything like that, and you go, well, why are you on your phone? And they go, well, I did it. I'm doing what you're saying yeah. to do. <laughs> um, and it struck me is that he was saying it was a good thing. And I remember there was a couple people that were actually quite a bit younger on the, the panel, and they were sort of, they actually had a bit of a, Almost yeah. rolling their eyes at him, yeah. saying he he was saying that like in a few years we're going to be looking at a mine through like this big like a yeah. holograph. We're going to be fixing it kind of like on Iron Man type thing. Yeah, and um, which we're doing now. Which yeah, and and people kind of and they chuckled. They, like they, Iron they Man. We we don't have, we're not elevating <laughs> with the boots or yeah. anything, but yeah. but the rest of this stuff's happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and they they chuckled at him. Yeah, and uh, and it, so it always struck me sitting there, and so I I went up and I met him after, and we became friends since then. Um, and it always struck me is that age, age is, is a factor, but it also is, it's so much of a mindset because he was one of the oldest and I was one of the youngest and, but his mindset was, this is going to change. And now the things he was discussing that people were ch chuckling at are when we, when I go to an event, it's a normal conversation to have. It's everybody's talking yep. about it. Um, and so it's it's always, and I always talk to. I I hope more younger people get into mining, <coughs> but I hope there's, you know, that collaboration between 
that experience and and youth is just so so important it's it's because if you don't have that an industry can go the wrong direction or it can get stuck in the mud and there's that that collaboration of and realizing that it's I, I, as much as it is age sometimes it's also that people looking for the right people that have the right mindset i'm yeah. sure you when you're bringing people in to build a company you're looking for people that want to push forward and come up with a new way of doing things yeah absolutely <laughs> and uh, you know uh, we we talk about a in in contracting appetite for risk mm. uh we have zero appetite for risk when it comes to safety right but when you look at uh, trying different things, uh, you know, y you've got to evaluate them, and, s and but you have to actually try them. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, it's, it's interesting. I presented uh, at the business class in Nipissing University and talked about the importance of building relationships. Mm -hmm. Everyone's expecting technical presentation. And I'm talking about relationship building. And then I posed a question to the class. I said, in terms of communication, what's the best way to build a relationship? Now, people in my age group would say face-to-face, -face, like mm -hmm. we're talking now. Right. Uh, but the majority of people in that class uh, voted for texting. And I thought that was interesting. I didn't think it was wrong. I thought it was interesting. So I asked them why, and they said, well, you, you, know, you get your ideas across quickly. They're, they're clear. If they're not understood, you can ask. Mm -hmm. You know, some of those things that don't happen in a face, you know, yeah. we talk and then after I go away saying, oh, Jared was saying this and you're saying, no, I was, Yeah. there's a uh, flight of the Concords, <laughs> you know, or it's, is it Brett and Michael that the two <laughs> talking and the one guy says, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> the second guy says, no, I'm thinking what I'm thinking. And, and that's communication. Yeah. Right? yeah. But what the students were saying is, if I do it by text or email, then it's clear and someone can ask questions of it, and I have a record of it. And so it yeah. was just a different mindset. It wasn't right or wrong. It was so, and that speaks to how we work between generations. Yeah. So I'm expecting a face-to-face -face conversation, and, and that person is uncomfortable with that, and they're much more comfortable to see it in writing, and then they understand exactly than... You know, how do we get together and make it all work? Mm. Do you see young, younger, younger generations who are coming into the mining industry? Do you see a difference in how they communicate in person, though? Has that? Is it? Do, do you, you know the more <laughs> things change, the more they stay the same, or do you actually see a difference with how somebody who's 25 years old getting into the industry from how you were when you were 25, or how your group was? So I won't talk about me when I was 25, but I will answer your question because traditionally there's a stereotype that engineers are poor communicators. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Although they're all... Uh, there's an always exceptions. The engineers on the show are uh, some of the longest views, so it's a funny thing. Yeah. People like the technical. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, the young engineers, uh, within Cementation, we've got a Toastmasters Club. Oh. Which sounds odd, but... Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's a, a way to improve your ability to express your, uh, your, your thoughts and your views. Uh, most of Toastmasters is about listening. And the biggest challenge in communication I've seen with, uh, I won't even say young people, it's with everyone, is their ability to listen. Mm -hmm. Because we, we're, we're all thinking quickly and 
Got it. When you're mentioning something, I'm thinking, oh, that reminds me of that story, and then I don't hear the rest of what you said. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a practiced art, that the art of listening. And that's probably the biggest challenge we have with, uh, but you don't want to dampen spirits either. Right. You know, people are excited about something, so they're, they're chomping at the bit to tell their story. But, you know, what is it? Seek, uh, seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's Dale Carnegie. It's one of the, uh, uh, it's not Dale Carnegie, but uh, um, I can't remember if it's Collins or one, one of the uh, business writers, but, uh, but it, it's so true. Uh, in our business, when a client wants a job done, we've got to listen to that client. And that sounds obvious, but it doesn't happen too often. You know, we're all of a sudden saying, we can do it this way and we can do this and we're great and yeah. you should hire us instead of sitting and listening to what they really want and how they want it done. Yeah. So. Well, uh, going and going back to, I think, young young people is, and I I run into it because I'm the same way. I listen and uh, my mind starts churning and by the time I'm about a quarter of the way through the conversation, I've already got it figured out. Yeah. And if you just take a breath and listen, because the things you know, you already know. You really have no need to share them until it's your turn. And you get to add in all these other tools while someone, someone's talking. I remember a teacher said to me, if you have a teacher, and I, I still don't know if I 100% agree, but I get the idea. If you, have, if you learn one key thing from a teacher, it was worth your time. Mm -hmm. and, and, I've always, and, and I've thought about it. Every teacher I've ever had, I've learned at least one thing from. Um, and it's a very powerful tool. And if you're listening, you can, you can, <laughs> you, you get to add in all the stuff you already have. You get to add one little extra tool on it. It can make yeah. a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. That, um. That's the old joke. My, my wife was telling me I, I, I didn't listen to her and I can't remember what else she said. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but it's, it's so true because yeah. you, 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 when your brain starts moving, you're, you're already formulating your answer. But yeah, uh, and it teaches you so control and discipline start. and everything else. Um, before we, we go, um, we, I want to talk about just quickly about your role at, at CIM um, and, and all the, I mean, they have events. And, and so I, I want to get that out there before we, before we wrap uh, up. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, CIM is, uh, I've been involved in it for a long time, and it's a, it's a great honor to be in as uh, president and there's lots of things we're doing. We're, we're, um, uh, there's about 10,000 members across Canada. Uh, there's branches, there's societies. There's about 25 branches, 10 societies, and then there's a national membership. And I've got this exciting, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a vision, but just I, I'm picturing what if these 10,000 people were working together to make mining better? What if we we're all working together to, to let the rest of Canada know what a great industry it is? So we're working on some things to do that, to mm -hmm. leverage that one CIM and, and get that, uh, uh, that impactful message out. Uh, CIM is about knowledge curation. So it's not, it's not a lobby group. It's a technical group. Right. And uh, capturing the technical presentations. So, so you guys are a role model for us. You're, you're, the way you capture this, and we're saying, if we could only do that with, <laughs> the, with the 300 presentations happening in Vancouver this week. Uh, so that's what we're starting to do, yeah. to develop a CIM Academy where we, where we capture these things. We, uh, we structure them so people can go into the topics that they're interested in. And instead of, I mean, we want people to come to the conferences. 
but we know that not everyone can. Yeah. So how do you share that knowledge? Uh, another project I'm very excited about, we're working with Science North on a, uh, an exhibition for young people that travels across the country. Oh, neat. And the Mining for Society that we've done before, over a 10-year period, we, we reached out to about 75,000 kids. They would come to these displays and try and understand what's happening. The format we're looking at with Science North is in major science centers across the country year-round, and we're looking at uh, as many as 300,000 visitors a year. So it's just exponential compared to what we've done in the past. And it's all about telling the public uh, what a great industry we are, how safe it is, how high tech opportunities for kids. And I will do, uh, you know, the surveys we've done, the public recognize the importance of minerals. They're not as fond as how we mine them. <laughs> right. And there's perceptions out there that uh, mining is uh, uh, a contributor to climate change. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what, what I've been telling people is mining is the solution. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the copper that goes into electric cars, uh, the metals and minerals that go into solar panels, all of those things that are gonna make us less dependent on diesel or, mm -hmm. or on Fuel. fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, are generated through mining. So that perception that, uh, you know, the real story is that we're gonna be a major part of the solution. Uh, the concerns about our relations with uh, uh, First Nations and Aboriginal people across the country. I've, we have partnerships with 13 different groups. We work from coast to coast to coast. We've got great working relationships and we've seen it generate career opportunities, jobs, uh, we, we've seen the, the income benefit the communities. There, there's so many pluses, but there's still that perception that there's, that there's uh, an adversarial relationship. Yeah. And that's, not, that's the exception, not the rule. So. You know, we've, uh, we've got a little friend flying yeah. around. Um, you know, yeah. that we've, we've had uh, several Indigenous leaders, and we're, we're going to have more uh, people from the community uh, on our show. And... Yeah, it's it, it's 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 one of the personal frustrations of mine because I I grew up in those in the community. I grew yeah. up in a rural area, yeah. growing. Um, I was on a s I, I went to a school that was on reserve land at one okay. point. So, yeah. um, it's very frustrating for me because there are people that are. I mean, like any in any community, yeah. there are people that are anti-mining or yeah. anti-oil or or whatever. You, you need those people. You kind of need to, to yeah. create that balance, but it does frustrate frustrate me that in a in a mainstream if i just turn on the radio let's say i'm only hearing the leaders that are opposing this yeah. mm -hmm. so there's 20 communities that are for it that have signed off on it, and there's three that are opposing and i'm not saying that they shouldn't they absolutely should get yeah. the airtime but the other organizations and leadership these in in the first nations community that have formulated these partners they should also get an airtime and sometimes it's very frustrating for me because then even in like I'm I'm here in Vancouver, and so I and I always be especially with this show, um, but even before I just uh, my naturally the way I am I'm always trying to see how people perceive things, so I'll I will purposely bring up I Indigenous culture in a convers yeah. in a casual conversation, and people's perception of how the Indigenous people view things 
is so often. I mean, it's not just a little bit off. It is way, way off. Yeah. And the that is because of the information they're getting, which is just it's so unfair yeah. to those communities. And and then the people that are the, the people that need uh, that are trying the, these industrial people that are pushing forward now they're going against a cultural view of who they are. It's just it's the most unreasonable thing. And so yeah. on our show. We haven't tried to come on and just say, well, we, we brought um, Frank Antoine, who is, he's, has a tourism company. He wants to keep everything beautiful. Yeah. But he also recognizes that his nephews and nieces, and they need good jobs. and that. So he's, how do you work together? And that's how most, most yeah. reasonable people in any community, that's how they perceive it. And so it's a little sort of a side goal of our show to, to bring in leaders from these communities not necessarily that say they support everything, but at least get a chance to say what their viewpoints, what their com where their community stands, not just kind of push this narrative um, that there's three communities that are opposing everything, yeah. you know. I think, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before about safety, but I see it too in our uh, um, Aboriginal relationships is that the industry has gone from one of compliance to commitment. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is there were laws there was legislation that the mining groups had to follow. That was the first step to get us to be more responsible because the reality is there's a history there. Yeah, oh, and for sure. And the industry wasn't always doing the right thing. So legislation was put in place. So companies had to meet that legislation, but most companies now have gone far beyond that legislation. So it's gone from an industry of compliance to one of commitment for all the right reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a moral imperative. There's a business... Uh, model or, or a business justification as well. There, there's social pressures. Those social pressures aren't a bad thing. No, they, they're not. They, they allow us to understand the public's concerns and to address those concerns. So, so I agree with you that the, you know, the issue, um, it's a media issue, present company excluded. Yeah. Uh, but well, we can only only try. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, when when we when we don't when we focus on a couple of extreme cases and the public understands that to be the norm, that's where we as an industry are challenged to really explain to the public what our industry is about. Yep. Yeah. So we can't complain about public perception. We have to act on it and we have to uh, be better at telling our story. Yeah. You know, I had a thought too, you know, and I, uh, the other day I was driving thinking about that we, I think the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, there's a lot of pride for what was built from that. This heavy industry just sort of exploded across yeah. the globe. And I think now the next phase of it, which to me is really exciting, and it's, not, it's certainly not a conservative or a sort of more liberal position on how things should be done, but I think we're now in this, we've built it, now how do you make it? the greenest it can be, the most efficient it can be, the most beneficial to the communities. That's, the, that's that next challenge of, of sort of of mankind. And it's, it's quite an exciting time for me. Very interesting. I, I should send you my speech to Nipsing University graduates because I talk about that the, the new business model mm -hmm. where profit isn't, profit is the enabler, not the end goal. Right, yeah. Right. In other words, there's a number of things that a business, and that's how we modeled cementation. Our vision is to change the industry. It wasn't to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It's to change the industry for the benefit of all stakeholders. 
so first is recognizing the stakeholders, and certainly the public, our employees, there's different groups that are stakeholders beyond the shareholders. And, you know, the, uh, the invisible hand, if you go to Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations and, uh, and some great stuff there about international trade, which I won't go into, but, uh, uh, you know, the origins of capitalism, but, but the theory there was the invisible hand, which is the market, will govern, you mm -hmm. know, so you don't need to legislate it. And, you know, the invisible hand was invisible during the financial meltdown. You know, capitalism wasn't governing itself. And, you know, the, the next evolution of capitalism, and we're seeing it now, where companies are not only looking at profit to shareholders, but they have to look at long-term benefits to the community, to stakeholders. And, you know, I, I see a point in time where that will be the primary goal. And in order to do that, you have to be profitable. Mm -hmm. Not the other way around. Not you're doing all this stuff so you can make money. Mm -hmm. It's you're making money so you can do all this stuff. Right. Right. And 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 I see that happening in some areas, and I think it's a generational change too. Mm -hmm. I think younger people have a different view. There there isn't that. Uh, was it Michael Douglas that uh, greed is good? That philosophy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that uh, w uh, was it Wall Street. I can't remember the movie, but yeah, uh, I think it but, was. Uh, you know, that that philosophy, that was only half a joke then. You know, we think that's a joke, but, but back then that was, there were a lot of people living that, uh, that was their dream, the, the big money dream. Yeah. And I, I don't see that with young people now. I mean, people want to make money and have a good quality of life, but we talk about money again as an enabler personally too. Yeah. It allows you to have that quality of life and to have education for your kids and do all the things that you right, want to yeah. do. Uh, so the same analogy in business. It's not the end goal, but you, you have to be profitable in order to be sustainable and to do all those other things you want to do, like change the industry for the better. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I could ramble on. I had one coffee this morning and I'm already <laughs> rambling. <laughs> <laughs> Half a coffee, I think. So Yeah, no. Good coffee. <laughs> Thank you. Thank guys. you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's but no, it it is such an important it's such an important topic, and you know we we try to merge technical and and sort of that, and I I think I think greed is greed is about taking, you know, and I think but vision can push both you forward and any and the stakeholders the stakeholders yeah. forward, and I think vision I don't think that ever goes out of style. I don't think that should. I mean, it can. There's have cultures that have went way too far where it's just basically, you know, a state run, and it's you know and that has never really yeah. worked. But that that word vision, um, and it can. There's so much that goes into that. It, whether it's it's a greener future, more productive, you know, better way of life, you know, all those sort of things. And I think maybe that's a little bit more where we're on a pot. There's there's always a negative, but on the positive, I think we are moving in towards it. People really, they really are. Uh, better quality of life allows you to have more vision yeah. that's the other thing and and uh, you know it's anyway it's it's a very interesting uh, discussion and you know the whole concept of vision in the old days it was we're you know we're targeting uh, this level of dividend for our shareholders and you as an employee how exciting is that to you <laughs> not very inspiring 
And there, there's groups, you know, certainly the Apples and the Googles, although I don't like to compare to them because normal businesses, uh, you <laughs> should not draw analogies to Google or Apple, but there's more and more companies now that recognize that in order to engage uh, their employees, uh, money doesn't do it. And no. I don't mean paycheck, but I mean, you know, the, the profit factor doesn't do it. Cementation's been recognized for a number of years as one of the top 100 employers in Canada. And w we pay our people well, but I think we go far beyond that in how we engage our employees. And more and more companies are focused on that engagement now. And uh, that's great to see. That's one of the shifts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from that profit motive to that enablement and that, that vision like yeah. you talked about. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, I know you have an, you have events to get to, and you're, uh, what's the event that you're at right now? Uh, it's called CopperCom. So the Metallurgical Society uh, of the CIM is hosting it. Uh, it goes to different countries, different years. It's in Canada this year in Vancouver. Uh, there's probably about a thousand delegates there. They're focused on copper, Yeah. as you might have uh, uh, figured out. Uh, there's a range of presentations from technical to more general about the industry. And uh, it's, uh, they, in the plenary, they did a link with a, uh, uh, Glencore did a link with one of their factories in, in Europe. Uh, so it was a live link. And so the, the managers of their smelter were walking us through the smelter oh on yeah, screen. Neat. It was, you know, it was a, a great way to, to kick off the conference. And so we've seen some really good presentations and there's, there's different technical streams. That's just one of the, CIM societies and the type of thing they do. Yeah. So that technical knowledge sharing. But another thing great about the industry is all these companies are coming out and sharing their great ideas. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's an innovation pot, so to right, speak. Yeah. Although not structured as, but you can see what uh, Glencore or Freeport Mark Moran or Tech or different groups are doing and they're sharing that with the industry. Yeah. Well, uh, and we'll put some links and everything in the show uh, so that people oh, yeah. can find yeah. it and Roy, thank you for coming on the show. I really do appreciate no, it. Well, thanks for Good the invite. I really enjoyed it. Finding thank time you. in a busy, well, you're yeah. at an event, so yeah. coming all the way here. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to do a quick sign-off. Yes. Um, where can people find us, Gowdy? Follow us, like us, comment. <laughs> Tell us how we can be better. <laughs> yes, please do. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel, um, uh, and you can follow us at Crownsman P through Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, all of social media. Um, you can also email us, info at crownsman.com for any uh, advice or if you have comments on the show, how we can do better or any topics you'd like to see on the show as well. Yeah. Um, or any guests that you think should be on the show, send us their info and we'll definitely contact them. You can also listen to the podcast on Anchor and Lots and lots. Wherever, <laughs> your wherever you get your podcast. Yes, I won't go. It's a huge <laughs> list. Um, but anywhere, we're there. Um, all the major platforms like Google, Apple, and Spotify, we're definitely on there. So you can listen to us there as well. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Gowdy. Thank you again to Roy Slack for coming on the show. That was that was a great uh, that was a great time having him here. Yeah. And thank you for watching. Um, we want to be the voice of industry. And all we mean by that is facilitate the experts and the leaders in the industry, giving them a platform to, to, uh, to, to unpack 
what what their companies offer and what they offer. And uh, so it's just a great honor for us. And thank you very much for listening.